you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the July 29, 2023, Saturday reading of the Arapaho County News. My name is Zachary Fisher. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Colorado Poll Sees Concern About Cost of Living, written by Parker Yamasaki. Castle Rock Man Facing Terrorism Charge, written by McKenna Harford. Health Officials Warn of West Nile Virus, written by Teddy Jacobson. Centennial Leaders Zero In on Pickleball Noise Amid Moratorium, written by Taylor Shaw, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Colorado Poll Sees Concern About Cost of Living, written by Parker Yamasaki. Cost of living and housing affordability are the top concerns of Coloradans this year, according to a poll released by the Colorado Health Foundation. In an open-ended question, asking participants what they thought the most important issue facing Colorado is right now, 16% answered cost of living, and 15% answered housing affordability. Other issues in the top five were government and politics, public safety and crime, and homelessness. About 10% of respondents said that homelessness was their top concern for Colorado, with 79% calling the problem, quote, extremely serious, or, quote, very serious. The results from the fourth annual survey arrived as Denver's new mayor, Mike Johnston, declared a state of emergency around homelessness during his first full day in office. Polling is conducted over one month through phone, email, and text invitations in English and Spanish. This year's data includes 2,639 respondents across all ages, races, and income brackets, with oversamples of African American, Indigenous, Asian American, and Pueblo County residents. One of the cornerstones of CHF is to serve folks with historically less power or privilege, according to Austin Montoya, Senior Officer for Policy Advocacy Communications, which is why the Foundation takes larger samples of specific populations. Montoya said that by sampling larger numbers of smaller populations, they're able to more accurately reflect the experiences of those populations. The data is later weighted to reflect Colorado's population. Since the poll's inception in 2020, the biggest drop in respondents' top concern was, unsurprisingly, COVID-19, which was top of mind for 26% of Coloradans in 2020, compared with 0% in 2023. The second and third largest decreases in concern were political division, down 6 percentage points, and jobs and the economy, down 5. In the past year, Colorado's job openings and unemployment reached something near equilibrium, so it tracks that anxiety over jobs has fallen since the 2020 polling, when uncertainty was rampant. Homelessness had the largest increase as a top concern since last year, up three percentage points, while crime had the largest increase as a top concern over the past four years, up eight percentage points. Both issues were a major focus for Denver's mayoral election this year. While most concerns associated with costs, such as rising costs of living, cost of housing and jobs, tended to decline in importance as income levels rose, the percentage of respondents most concerned by homelessness 
was consistent across income levels. The difference between the lowest and highest income earners concerned with homelessness was only three percentage points. Having a home is one major concern. Staying in it is another. At the time of polling, renters were significantly more worried about not being able to make rent payments than homeowners were worried about their mortgages, at a rate of 49% compared with 19% of respondents. However, that number may flip as property owners come to terms with their new exponentially high valuations, which were issued after the Pulse poll was conducted. Respondents who identified as Native American or Indigenous showed the most concern over losing their homes, with 49% answering that they were worried in this year's poll, while the African American respondents had the largest increase in those worried, up 16 percentage points to 47% from 31% last year. Almost every household with an income below $150,000 was worried about their children being able to afford a home in Colorado. Montoya wants the information gleaned from these polls to help inform policymakers' priorities. He said the Foundation's primary audience is local lawmakers and legislators. When presented with a number of policy solutions, Respondents thought that the most effective ways to mitigate housing cost challenges are to reduce property taxes for homeowners with low or fixed incomes and to ensure that landlords cannot raise rents on tenants too quickly. The biggest divisions around effective policy solutions were between Republicans and Democrats in the state, with independents falling squarely between the parties for every proposed solution. The largest differences between what the parties viewed as effective solutions were requiring developers to build low-income housing. 86% of Democrats thought this would be an effective solution, while only 49% of Republicans agreed, and increasing government investments in programs that prevent people from becoming homeless. 87% of Democrats believed in its effectiveness, while 46% of Republicans agreed. The takeaway from this year's data, Montoya said, was that it hasn't changed much since last year. Montoya believes that Coloradans' major concerns skyrocketed after COVID and have continued to stay high ever since. The majority of these worries have increased since 2020, but there hasn't been much of a decline in any of them. There's really just a plateau, he said, and a majority of folks are feeling concerned. Castle Rock Man Facing Terrorism Charge by McKenna Harford the FBI arrested a Castle Rock man at Denver International Airport on July 14th for allegedly attempting to join the Islamic State group, also known as ISIS, an Islamic militant organization. Dave and Daniel Meyer, 18, is charged with attempting to provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Colorado. He appeared in federal court on July 17th. The U.S. Attorney's Office said Meyer pledged an oath of allegiance to the Islamic State group and planned to travel to Iraq to fight for them. Law enforcement began investigating Meyer when a person who knows him reported him to the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in June 2022 over concerns with Meyer's extremism and interest in violence. According to Meyer's affidavit, the individual told police that Meyer had previously followed white supremacist ideology but began practicing Islam in October 2020. Meyer allegedly told the individual that he planned to go to Syria and become a martyr. Meyer also allegedly threatened to build a bomb and kill people in America. 
Myers' affidavit says he is diagnosed with multiple mental health conditions and had received residential treatment, but did not take medication because of his religious beliefs. Staff at the residential treatment center reported Myers said bigoted things about people of color, women, and Jews. Myers reportedly did not go to his local mosque because it wasn't radical enough and allowed women to attend. In November of 2022, FBI agents posed as Islamic State facilitators and began communicating online with Meyer. Meyer told the agents that he planned to save money to travel to Iraq and become a fighter for the Islamic State. He also sent them a video of him swearing an oath of allegiance to the Islamic State's leader. Meyer met with an undercover FBI agent in person three times between November 2022 and June 2023 and discussed his plan each time. In June, Meyer had gotten a passport and bought plane tickets to fly from Denver to Munich, Germany, and then to Ankara, Turkey, where he believed he would meet up with members of the Islamic State and travel with them to Iraq. On July 14th, Meyer arrived at the Denver International Airport for his flight to Munich and was arrested by FBI agents on the jet bridge before boarding the plane. Assistant U.S. Attorney Melissa Hinman of the District of Colorado is prosecuting on behalf of the government with the assistance of Jennifer Levy of the Department of Justice National Security Division's Counterterrorism Section. The case is being investigated by the FBI Denver Field Office, with assistance provided by the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. Health Officials Warn of West Nile Virus by Teddy Jacobson Weeks of heavy rainfall, followed by a string of hot days, has health officials in Adams County warning residents to be aware of mosquitoes. The weather has created perfect conditions for mosquitoes, some with the ability to transmit the potentially deadly West Nile virus. The Adams County Health Department runs a mosquito trapping program in various parts of the county. From there, they identify mosquitoes that could carry the virus and run tests on them. Farajara, manager of the program, said that monitoring mosquitoes in this way is the county's primary tool for warning the public about health risks. So far, Jara said that the county has not tracked any mosquitoes carrying the virus. However, the virus has been found in mosquitoes in Arapahoe, Boulder, Delta, Larimer, and Weld counties, according to recent tests in each county. West Nile is the most common mosquito-borne disease in the continental United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Most of those who are infected don't feel sick, but about one in five people develop a fever and other symptoms. About one in 150 people become seriously ill and may die, according to the CDC. 36 cases have been reported to the CDC so far this year, none of them yet in Colorado. However, based on past trends, health officials in the state believe cases will appear soon. Last year, Colorado reported 206 total cases and 20 deaths in 2022. Of those, Adams County had 23 cases and 5 deaths, said Adams County Environmental Health Division Director Brian Lavacek. We expect we will see some cases this year, Lavacek said, but we can't predict the numbers. Jowra expects mosquito activity to rise toward the end of July into August. She said the time to take preventative measures is now. There are countless ways to prevent mosquito populations from growing and spreading the virus, despite the rain this summer. Mosquitoes lay their eggs in stagnant water and require water to complete their life cycle, Jara said.
Due to the abundance of rain in Colorado, mosquito populations are flourishing. To limit mosquito harborage, Jara said it's important to identify and clear areas where stagnant water could be present. Remove pet dishes that can hold water from patios and decks. Clean and inspect roof gutters. Remove piles of debris from outdoor areas, including buckets, barrels, toys, and tire swings that can hold pools of stagnant water. Change water and bird baths frequently. Maintain swimming pools and spas with proper filtration and chlorination levels. Limit watering of lawns and outdoor plants to avoid the pooling of water. Even with intervention, mosquitoes will still be around. Jara said residents should also be aware of ways to keep themselves from being bitten. Utilizing proper means of preventing mosquito bites is integral in protecting the health of the Adams County community, Jara said. Centennial leaders zero in on pickleball noise amid moratorium by Taylor Shaw. Amid a moratorium on pickleball, officials in Centennial are narrowing down ways to lessen the impacts of the sport's noise before giving the green light to gameplay near homes. One factor in their decision could be what a sound expert dubs impulsive sounds, sudden noises that are distracting enough to make it difficult for people to relax and may even result in long-term psychological issues. The reason that we're taking a look at pickleball noise is the long-term impacts of it, said Neil Marciniak, the city's director of community and economic development. In March, the city council passed a six-month moratorium on new applications or approvals for outdoor pickleball courts within 500 feet of residential uses. This month, noise consulted Lance Willis, the principal acoustical engineer of Spendiarian and Willis Acoustics and Noise Control, turned in a study on the issue to the city, pickleball noise impact assessment and abatement planning. The study found the main concern for residents who live close to pickleball courts is the popping sound the hard plastic ball makes when it's struck by paddles. Those random, persistent sounds, described as impulsive, can create annoyance because they're similar to sounds that contain important information about our environment, such as footsteps, a door opening, a tap at the window, or speech, the study said. Continuous false alarms such as the popping sound created by pickleball paddle impacts make it difficult to relax, concentrate, or even sleep soundly without disturbance as each time a pop is heard, it draws the attention, creating distraction, the study said. The study noted that lower amplitude sound can have adverse long-term psychological effects. The most important factor to consider when selecting a site for pickleball courts is the distance to adjacent residential areas, according to the study. Typically, pickleball courts located within 350 feet of residential properties require noise abatement, and those that are closer, within 150 feet, require extensive noise dampening, the study said. Those within 100 feet are not recommended and have proven to be problematic leading to lawsuits, strict limitations on usage, and court closures. Pickleball courts within 500 feet to 600 feet of noise-sensitive areas should be reviewed by an acoustical engineer in the site selection phase of the project, the study said. Staff is looking to take a straightforward approach to pickleball noise abatement by using an appropriate setback distance, limiting hours of operation, and monitoring lighting, Jessica LaCambra, a Centennial City planner, said. 
Lacambra said if newly proposed outdoor permanent courts could not meet these standards, then the setbacks might be reduced with additional measures and a required noise study from a qualified acoustical engineer. Physical noise barriers, hours of operation, lighting rules, the directional orientation of the courts, and the number of courts all are considerations, she added. Another way to reduce pickleball noise is requiring different equipment, such as a foam ball rather than a typical plastic one. However, regulating the type of pickleball equipment people use would be difficult to enforce, Lacambra said. Another difficult standard to enforce would be speech, whether that be volume or content, she said. Neil Marciniak with the city said there's a lot of details still to consider before the city has a plan. What staff is going to have to settle on, and council will have to agree to, is what is that sound level that gives us the most comfort, gives our residents the most protection, and ultimately, hopefully arrives at the fewest noise complaints, Marciniak said. Council member Candace Moon said the city needs to be very careful and equitable in how we craft this ordinance. There's a lot of choices that can be made as far as how we choose to have an ordinance, she added. City staff is expected to seek additional input from community stakeholders, such as neighborhood groups, parks, and recreation districts, correction, districts, and homeowners associations. The city previously collected public input through its website asking for feedback on what level of government regulation of outdoor pickleball courts residents would like to see. City staff will also assess likely pickleball court locations to evaluate potential noise risks and applicability of the potential regulations. According to the city's website, the public hearings and consideration of regulations is expected to occur around August or September. Lynn Suzanne Broad, age 79, surrounded by her family, passed away peacefully on July 7, 2023, after a short battle with pancreatic cancer. She was born April 15, 1944, in Detroit, Michigan, to Carl George Lepper and Gertrude Loretta Colley. Why Blind Historian Tells the Stories of the Blind by Teddy Jacobson It only takes an introduction and a few minutes of talking with historian Peggy Chong to learn something new. Chong, also known as the Blind History Lady, can easily rattle off countless names and stories of blind people throughout history. For instance, you may know Stevie Wonder, but you probably didn't know Governor Elias Ammons. Chong has researched the stories of the blind for over three decades. She excitedly shares their biographies with anyone willing to listen, primarily through a monthly email list. People often find the stories hard to believe, that there's something special about these blind people, Chong said. If you read on, you do find that there was something special about them, because they just never quit. Chong, who lives in Aurora, was born blind into a family that understood her struggles. Three of her four sisters and her mother were also born blind. Chong said that the support and connections she received from her family is rare for the majority of blind people. Everything you do feels like you're reinventing the wheel, Chong said, and you may not have a community around you to help you not feel that way. Almost 8% of the U.S. population are visually impaired in some way, according to Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute. Just over 4 million Americans, aged 16 to 64, have a visual disability, and another 3 million people, 65 years old and older, have one, 
according to the National Federation of the Blind. Chong said most people go blind later in life due to health issues or injuries. She said it's easy for people to lose faith in their abilities because of a stigma about what blind people can do. Too often we're told that a blind person can't do that, but blind people throughout the years have accomplished so much in their work, Chong said. The main stories she tells involve the jobs and work that blind people have had over the years. Over 70% of potentially employable adults with a visual disability in the United States do not have a full-time job, according to Cornell University's U.S. disability statistics. Chong said, sharing stories of blind people inspires people today to work the jobs that they want to do, in spite of the adversary. For example, Chong said most Coloradans don't know the state had a blind governor. Elias Ammons was the 19th governor of the state, serving from 1913 to 1915. Although he had some vision, Chong said, it was not enough to read or recognize people across the room. The irony of some of the discrimination is unbelievable when you find out what these blind people accomplished later in their lives, she said. Chong moved to the state five years ago, where she almost immediately started searching through records in the Colorado Center for the Blind Basement. She said she discovered records dating back more than a hundred years. She led the effort to digitize and transcribe the pages for blind people to read through optical character recognition, which is a system that scans printed text so it can be spoken in synthetic speech or saved to a computer file. The project started four years ago, and Chong said she's almost done putting the files on the Colorado Virtual Library website. President of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado, Jessica Beecham, said Chong's work is vital for showing other blind people their rich history is out there and worth sharing. As a blind person, I never knew our history, Beecham said in a press release. I thought we as blind people were always the first to do or try anything. That's so lonely. But through her research, I, and thousands more, are learning that we have broad shoulders of our blind ancestors to stand on, inspiring us to climb higher and reach farther. Chong won the Jacob Bolleton Award at the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Houston, Texas, earlier this month. The award comes with $5,000 to help her advance her research into the history of the blind of the United States. The Dr. Jacob Bolleton Award honors individuals and organizations that are a positive force in the lives of blind people. The namesake of the award, Bolletin, is hailed as the world's first physician who is blind from birth. Each year, the National Federation of the Blind presents the awards at its annual convention. This is the second time she received this award for her work, the first coming in 2018. Her new project will take her to the Library of Congress Archives in Washington, D.C., where she will research and tell the history of an awards program through the Harmon Foundation from 1928 to 1932. This award means a lot to me, Chong stated. It represents the validation by my peers that my work to uncover the lost history of our blind ancestors is important. Officials Update Neighbors on House Tied to Explosives by Elizabeth Slay Representatives from the City of Englewood and the Englewood Police Department held a meeting Thursday for citizens who feel the city is not what it used to be, with the purpose of addressing concerns regarding the home at 4945 South Delaware Street. 
Neighbors living near the property expressed their fears and frustrations about the residents, including a suspected bomb-making operation, allegations of drug activities, and extreme hoarding. The gathering was held on the street in front of the home. One neighbor said he's disheartened that history is repeating itself. It's like a joke. Everybody keeps referring to this house in Englewood. Doesn't matter who I speak to, if it's a city council member, if it's a police officer, they all know about this property, he said. We've been told what to do, write down plates, get cameras, do all these things. And it's at a point in time where it gets frustrating calling all the time because things just don't get done. The owner of 4945 South Delaware Street, Michael Stephen Lubotsky, 50, and another man, Brian Gazing, 51, were formally charged by the 18th Judicial District Attorney's Office, July 6th, for allegedly making explosives on the property, which they were arrested for June 29th. Their arrests came just one day after the city issued a condemnation notice because the property was deemed unfit for human occupancy, documents state. According to Englewood Police Division Chief Tracy Jones, Lubotsky is facing a charge of possession of an explosive device, and Jones said EPD believes he is staying with a friend in Littleton. The case is in district court right now. I think he's been advised of everything, Jones said. According to Eric Ross, Media Relations Director at the 18th Judicial District Attorney's Office, Lubotsky's bond was $5,000 cash or surety, which he posted. Ross explained a judge set a $5,000 bond cash or surety for guessing on June 29th, then changed it to a $1,000 bond cash or surety on July 3rd, and then changed it to a $5,000 personal reconnaissance bond on July 6th. Gezing is also facing a charge of possession of an explosive device and a drug paraphernalia possession charge. Both men are scheduled to appear in court for preliminary hearings July 31st, with Gezing at 9 a.m., and Lubotsky at 10 a.m. at the Arapahoe County Justice Center. Jones said EPD and other agencies found apparent bomb-making materials, cut PVC pipe, and explosive ingredients, including potassium nitrate, at the house. He said various materials taken from the home are being analyzed. At the meeting, the officer stated EPD is hoping the Drug Enforcement Administration the Bureau for Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or the FBI, will take over the case. If the ATF, DEA, whoever decides the case is worthy for them to take and they can prosecute it, they will go through the forfeiture process and they can take the house, Jones said. He said this is one of the ways the city could recover taxpayer funds used to clean up the house, which the city is doing after issuing an emergency abatement order on July 7th. According to city manager Sean Lewis, the abatement prevents Lubotsky and any unauthorized people from entering the property for now. Right now, the city's bearing all the cost of the boarding, the securing the fences, the removal of all the materials from outside, and the removal of all the materials from inside the house. All of that is on the taxpayer dime on the city of Englewood, he said. The city manager explained, to ensure the city is reimbursed, it will add up all the costs plus an administrative fee and put a lien on the property, which stays with it and is filled with the county. Correction, filed with the county. When the county assessor sends the tax bill in 2024, Lubotsky will have to pay that or he will be delinquent in taxes and until he gets that paid, he's in danger of having the city foreclose on the lien, Sean Lewis said. He said the Arapahoe County Health Department 
is involved with aspects of the property, including suspected meth contamination and potential issues with vermin, which residents mentioned were becoming a problem. Now that we have a preliminary positive meth reports, that goes to Arapahoe County Public Health to basically determine the abatement and, mit and the mitigation plan for that, Sean Lewis said. During the meeting, Code Enforcement Division Manager Dave Lewis Jr. said Lubotsky must comply with the Arapahoe County Health Department and the city before he will be granted access to his house. However, Sean Lewis said if Lubotsky does comply with all entities and he pays off the lien, then he can return to the property. Many residents at Thursday's meeting asked whether the city could prevent Lubotsky from returning to the residence, describing the property as a problem for many years. According to EPD call logs from the last five years, officers have responded to various complaints at or near the property. The records show the calls included welfare checks, verbal disturbances, domestic violence complaints, noise complaints, assaults, and more. Additionally, documents show Lubotsky was convicted of possession of meth precursors in a case stemming from 2007 and was convicted of obstruction in connection with the 2012 drug investigation. When asked about past code enforcement issues at the meeting, city officials said at time correction at the time Lubotsky complied to address issues the city brought forward. Sean Lewis said despite the homeowner's past, the city can't simply take away his property. Correction, property. I'm not aware of a path for the city to permanently keep the owner from returning to the property, he said. In terms of levels of government, the city has less authority than the other levels of government at the state and federal level. He also said that since the property is in a remediation abatement status, that grants Lubotsky the opportunity to cure issues with his property. During the meeting, Sean Lewis told the crowd he understands their frustrations and assured them that the city is trying to take an aggressive approach to resolve the issues with the property. Other city officials in attendance including Police Chief Sam Watson and District 4 Council Member Steve Ward, encourage residents to remain engaged by reporting any activity around the property to the EPD non-emergency number, calling their council members with any issues, registering for the AngleFix app to file complaints, and appointing a spokesperson for the neighborhood to voice concerns at future court proceedings or meetings involving the property. City officials said they will continue monitoring the property. Wet Weather Brings Uptick in Ticks by Nina Joss The wet weather this season means nature lovers should be on the lookout for ticks as they enjoy Colorado's mountains, woods, parks, and trails. There does seem to be a lot more ticks this year, said Chris Roundy, a medical entomologist at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. They do like wet weather, so our wet spring has certainly created ideal environments for them. The two most common ticks in Colorado are the Rocky Mountain Wood Tick and the American Dog Tick, which can both carry diseases, Roundy said. The likeliness of getting a disease from a tick bite in Colorado, however, is relatively low. Though we are seeing an increase in ticks, that doesn't necessarily mean an increase in tick-borne diseases, Roundy said. If you're bitten by a tick, there's still a very slim chance that they will transmit anything. Luckily, ticks in Colorado don't carry Lyme disease, a sometimes serious and long-lasting disease carried by ticks in other parts of the country, according to the Colorado State University Extension Office. They can instead carry Colorado tick fever, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or tularemia, depending on the type of tick.
The seriousness of these diseases can range from having flu-like symptoms to life-threatening conditions, Roundy said, but the latter is very rare. If a person is bitten by a tick in Colorado, Roundy said they should watch for a headache, fever, or rash, and seek medical attention if they develop any of these symptoms. Several of the diseases can be treated with antibiotics, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. To prevent ticks, Roundy said people should wear long pants tucked into socks, use insect repellent with DEET, and consider treating their clothes with an insecticide called permethrin if they'll be outside for days at a time. If you've been spending significant time outside, always a good idea to check for ticks, he added. They like to hang out in areas where they've got something helping them hold on. This might be in our armpits, waistband, back of the knee, in your hair. If someone finds a tick on themselves, a pet, or outside, they can double bag it and send it to the state health department to contribute to Colorado Citizen Science Tick Surveillance Program. In this program, Roundy determines the species of all submitted ticks and uses the data to better understand what types of ticks are found in Colorado and where they live. I've received upwards of 250 ticks so far this season in our surveillance program, which is great, he said. The more submissions we get, the better understanding we have of the ticks in Colorado. Tick submissions have roughly multiplied by five since last year, but Roundy said it's difficult to accurately compare these numbers because of the state health department's increased messaging about the program this year. Roundy contributes the increase in tick submissions to both the expanded awareness of the program and the wet weather. If a person finds a tick outside, Roundy said he does not recommend trying to capture it, if it will put the person at risk of being bitten. The Centers for Disease Control also warns people not to squeeze or remove a tick with their fingers. Instead, the CDC offers the following tips. 1. Use clean, fine-tipped tweezers to grasp the tick as close to the skin surface as possible. 2. Pull upward with steady, even pressure. 3. After removing the tick, thoroughly clean the bite area and your hands with rubbing alcohol or soap and water. Never crush a tick with your fingers. Littleton Community Forum on Homelessness Encourages Dialogue by Nina Joss Chattering voices filled the Littleton Council Chambers on the morning of July 11th, as people gathered around tables and wrote ideas on giant notepads and colorful markers. The gathering of approximately 50 city officials, business owners, other community members, and representatives of the Tri-Cities Homelessness Initiative was focused on homelessness in Littleton. Over coffee and pastries, people shared their concerns, curiosity, disagreement, and ideas on the topic. I'm grateful to be a part of this project to listen and to put our heads together as we address this issue that both brings up these emotions that are real and intense and brings compassion and fear and a vision of who we want to be as a community, said Amanda Henderson, who facilitated the event. Henderson, the director of the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at the Elif School of Theology in Denver, was contracted by the city to help facilitate public engagement on the topic of homelessness in Littleton. The highlight of the meeting was, for many, when Joshua Cassius shared his story. 
Cassius grew up in Littleton and attended Littleton High School, he said. He received a scholarship to play hockey at the University of Denver, but lost this opportunity when he started taking drugs. He was expelled from Littleton High School for selling marijuana and then was in and out of prison for about 15 years, struggling with drug use. He started living on the streets and had a challenging relationship with his family. During this time, he met the teams at Graceful Cafe and the Life Center, community-serving organizations in Littleton, and started looking for help. He now lives in a halfway house, has a job, and is saving money. He's looking to soon move into a sober living home and is getting married soon. Where I was at before and where I'm at now is just two different lifestyles, he said. From using methamphetamine on the streets to having a job and getting married soon, it's incredible. Josh, everyone in this room, I'm sure, is so happy to hear of your success. One community member said at the end of the meeting, We applaud you and reach out. Get our names. Anything we can do will help. We want to hear so many more of these successes. The conversations of the forum were just the beginning of working towards long-term solutions for homelessness in Littleton. City manager Jim Becklenberg said, There needs to be an ongoing dialogue, he said. We have some of our community here, and I hope that we can take the concept and expand it so that we can keep this going and get even more in-depth around some of the topics that have come up today. Mayor Pro Tem Gretchen Ryden, who attended the meeting, emphasized the importance of these intentional conversations. Einstein is quoted as saying, If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes of that hour thinking about it, understanding it, and then five minutes solving it, she said. That's what we're doing right now, is that 55 minutes, right? We're really trying to understand this. Moving forward, she said Council's ultimate goal is to come up with specific action steps to keep working towards addressing homelessness in the city. Henderson's team will incorporate the findings from the forum and ongoing public surveys in a report that's set to come out in August. In an earlier stage of the process, Henderson's team conducted an informal survey with a small group of stakeholders in Littleton. Perspectives and experiences on what's happening in Littleton are all across the board, she said. So, whatever you're feeling, there are others who are feeling it, and there are people who are experiencing and seeing those questions in very different ways. The results of the survey showed that 44% of respondents said homelessness has impacted them or their businesses. During the meeting, attendees held conversations in small groups to answer several questions related to homelessness and their general experiences in Littleton. Some of their concerns included drug use, property rights, waste in the streets, vandalism, and the impact of homelessness on business owners and visitors. Some attendees also explored philosophical sides of the conversation, including how to help people experiencing homelessness who may not want help. They discussed the nuance involved in wanting help and how it can be hard for people to keep trying when they're repeatedly denied services and housing. The groups also discussed potential solutions and preventative strategies for homelessness, including eviction prevention programs, availability of caseworkers, shuttle services to transport unhoused folks to shelters, and more. Several speakers highlighted programs in place to assist those experiencing homelessness and to help address some of the concerns of community members. One of these programs is the Mobile Response Unit from All Health Network, which started a partnership with the City of Littleton in April. 
The Mobile Response Unit team includes mental and behavioral health case managers and a registered nurse. The team responds to calls with a large van equipped with food, water, toiletries, clothes, and more. In addition to these resources, it carries NARCAN equipment to take vital signs and some other medical treatment materials. They get calls for kind of a lower level of crisis or behavioral health concerns, mental health, substance concerns, correction, mental health, substance use, homelessness, just a number of different needs, and can provide that person with resources, said Andrea Martin, supervisor for the Mobile Response Unit and co-responder programs at All Health. The Mobile Responder Unit, which is dispatched through law enforcement's non-emergency line, can also provide voluntary transportation to crisis centers, detox centers, and shelters. She also explained All Health's Corresponder Program, which sends a licensed mental health practitioner to respond alongside law enforcement to higher-level crisis calls, including mental health, substance use, homelessness, and other welfare needs. All Health's Corresponder Team serves five cities, including Littleton. The team has several case managers and is hoping to add a specific case manager for homelessness in Littleton soon, Martin said. Those case managers go out and do proactive work with an officer each day and outreach individuals who are unhoused and can offer them resources and get them connected to services, she said. All Health also has a street outreach team, peer recovery coach, housing care navigators, and more mental health professionals who can provide crisis stabilization support resources, and advice in the community over the phone or in person at their crisis walk-in center at 6507 South Santa Fe Drive. Officer Luke Bichard of the Littleton Police Department explained the responsibilities and limits of police intervention when it comes to homelessness. He said the department's Special Enforcement Tactics Team, or SET Team, which does community outreach projects, collaborates on homelessness issues, and conducts bike patrols on the city's paths and greenways. The SET team, specifically, is not the end-all be-all for issues related to homelessness, he said. However, we are a good resource in terms of solving problems from a proactive standpoint. He said the team can enforce curfew in parks, but cannot do anything when people call to report someone sleeping in an open park during the day. We just get phone calls of somebody in a park just because they look homeless or they have multiple items, Bishard said. They have just as much right to those parks and open spaces as somebody with their kids taking a nap on a blanket. So if we do get those calls, there's nothing we're going to do. He said the team can and does enforce trespassing laws and respond to obstruction of public ways, street and sidewalks. He also reminded private business owners that they can trespass an individual from their property which means the individual can get a citation if they enter the property. He added that the police department works with co-responders whenever necessary and possible for issues related to homelessness. Bright and Cool to Moving Jail by Scott Taylor If Adams County hopes to build a new jail and keep it in Brighton, city councillors told Sheriff Gene Claps it would be best to keep it where it is. It's hard to find a place to put a jail and that, to me, lends some benefit to finding out how to expand or rebuild on land you already own, where you wouldn't have to go through that particular process, Brighton Councillor Peter Padilla said during Brighton's July 11th study session meeting. Any site you look for something new 
will run into a not-in-my-backyard scenario, and whoever is closest to it will challenge it. Clapp said the county has outgrown the current Adams County Detention Facility, just north of Bridge Street, on North 19th Avenue. The jail, built in 1983, is about a four-mile drive through Brighton neighborhoods from the Adams County Courthouse along Interstate 76 at Bromley Lane. Any option, which could cost between $180 million and $500 million, would require a vote of Adams County residents. Clapp said the crowding at the current jail is keeping his staff from working with inmates to cut back on recidivism. That includes space for counseling and training, he said. It's taken away some opportunities for us to help people to be able to be stable enough to be released and to help reduce the recidivism and provide services that can help them and their families, Klepp said. So we have lost, because of interior size, lots of opportunity to program and work with inmates to have some more success. Cindy Stringham, Adams County Manager of Planning, Design and Construction and Project Manager for the jail, outlined three options for replacing the aging jail. The first would simply correct existing deficiencies in the current building and would cost between $179 million and $206 million. Although it would require a lower initial investment and capital development costs, this option does not meet best practices, industry standards, does not meet regulatory requirements, and does not meet current energy codes, Stringham said. The current process workflow is inefficient and it has inadequate room for expansion, and it's not conductive to a positive and productive work environment. She also said overall costs of operating the existing facility, even with renovation, push the costs higher. Energy costs alone are higher than the cost of building new, she said. The second option would renovate the existing structure but add an additional 160,000 square feet of space. That could cost between $350 million and $403 million. It would be done in phases, carefully, to maintain security. It would be very disruptive to move occupants and secure areas, demolish a model for replacement, and then work through areas of renovation by phases while simultaneously vacating modules one by one to conduct renovations and upgrade the housing units and correcting the facility's deficiencies, she said. It would take up to six years. Keeping in the same location would cut down on costs associated with building on new land, and it would fix problems with the old jail. However, it would not leave room for future growth, and would be disruptive to the jail and the community, and would cost the most for maintenance. The final option would build an entirely new facility, and would cost between $445 million and $512 million. Stringham said the county does not have a favorite location in mind, although Chief Clapp said near the Adams County Courthouse would be nice. Once this site is identified, the total process of land acquisition is approximately a year with planning and design documents, permitting and construction documents, expected to take up to four years, followed by vacating the existing facility and the demolition of it, she said. Stringham said replacing the jail with the building could be set up more efficiently with future room to expand designed in from the beginning if it became necessary. But counselors were adamant that building a new jail anywhere would be difficult and building it near the courthouse would be a bad idea. If it turns out that you're going to attempt to relocate from your current facility, that'd be a huge obstacle, counselor Clint Blackhurst said. If it's at all possible and there turns out to be a new jail, my advice would be to locate it where it's currently at. I know it isn't ideal, 
but relocating it within the city of Brighton will be a huge political nightmare for us and for you. Nobody wants a jail in their backyard. Mayor Greg Mills, who lives by the current jail, said he does not want to see the jail go along Brighton's Interstate 76 interchange. It would be nearer to the courthouse there, but it would also be right in the middle of Brighton's Prairie Center retail developments, and would become the first thing people see when coming to Brighton from the east. I don't want I-76 to welcome you to the metro area with a big jail, he said. That I would not welcome in our community. Blacker suggested the new jail could go in Thornton, near the center of the county with better access to public transportation. I think it's somebody else's turn, Blacker said. Emerald Ash Borer Requires Homeowner Action But Not Panic by Shay Vance With Emerald Ash Borer, an invasive tree-killing insect, now in Arapahoe County, experts are advising people with ash trees to take action sooner rather than later. There's no need for people to panic because they've got a little bit of time, but they should start thinking about that now if they haven't already, said Lisa Mason, horticulturist and entomologist at the Colorado State University Extension Office in Arapahoe County. The species targets ash trees, which make up roughly 15% of the urban canopy, the surface area is shaded by trees, in Arapahoe County. An infestation in northeast Littleton was identified on June 20th by South Suburban Parks and Recreation District staff. According to South Suburban, the exact location was within the open space area next to the Big Dry Creek East Trailhead, near the Broadway and Littleton Boulevard intersection. Mary Dancer, the Littleton City Forester, said once the emerald ash borer invades an ash tree, it's essentially an immediate death sentence for the tree. You see the decline, and that means it's too late to save the tree, Dancer said. That's the reason it's a big deal, or a bigger deal, than other pests, because of its efficacy in killing the trees. Emerald ash borer, or EAB, was found in Boulder in 2013, having been brought to Colorado from Michigan. Since then, it has mostly stayed north of Denver. The reason for the jump down to Littleton is likely the transport of firewood across the city, Mason said. Mason advises that residents in and around Northeast Littleton start treatment or removal now, but said that most of the county still has time. There's a lot of great replacement tree options, and we're happy to help people figure out the replacement trees that work well for them, Mason said. Now that the pest has made its way south of Denver, it will eventually affect all ash trees in Arapahoe County, slowly spreading over the course of the coming years. Untreated ash trees will die. Anyone with an ash tree will eventually have to make a financial decision, whether they treat the tree with insecticides or whether they have the tree removed completely, Mason said. They don't have to make that decision right away. Removal can be pricey up front, but treatment may cost more in the long run. Some options require treatment every three years, and others can be as often as twice a year. The removal of one or multiple trees from a property, however, can decrease the value of the property and all these factors should be considered when deciding whether to treat or remove," Dancer said. The cost of each option can vary depending on the tree and the business being consulted. Because of the increased difficulty of removal after an infestation, it will cost homeowners less to remove their ash trees ahead of time rather than wait for EAB to reach their area, according to Mason. If a resident opts to treat their ash trees, the best way to go about it is to hire a licensed arborist according to Dancer, 
She said, some stores and, correction, some stores and nurseries sell certain chemicals that can work, but are diluted, making them less effective. The highly effective forms of treatment are only available through licensed applicators, who also know how to apply them correctly. Although it's possible to treat a tree after it's been infested, according to Mason, that treatment must be hasty. The best way to save an ash tree from EAB is to treat it before the insect invades. A resident may also opt to remove their ash tree, which is the better course of action for less healthy trees, Mason said. If a tree is not healthy, it's probably not a good candidate for treatments, because the insecticides are systemic. Correction, the insecticides are systemic, which means the root system needs to be able to uptake the insecticide and spread it throughout the tree, Mason said. An unhealthy ash tree just simply would not be able to do that. Homeowners may choose to remove their ash trees, even if they're healthy, depending on the value to the homeowner and homeowners association. Although Dancer recognizes the financial differences between the options, she highly advises against removing a tree that's healthy and in a sustainable location, not growing under a power line. I would only recommend removing for undesirable ash trees, she said. If your tree is healthy and you are able, chemically treating your ash is the best thing to do to save your own tree, contribute to the greater urban canopy in your neighborhood, and fight against the EAB. Without treatment or removal, an affected ash tree will die, increasing the risk of falling trees, which can be hazardous to personal safety and property. Dead trees in an urban homeowner setting can be a dangerous thing, Mason said. The impact on the urban canopy also poses a threat to the community benefits currently provided by ash trees, according to the Arapahoe County website. Healthy ash trees play an essential role in urban tree canopy health. They slow down stormwater runoff, provide much-needed shade and greenery, and help mitigate climate change by storing sequestered carbon. The webpage reads, correction, reads, That's all the time we have. I'll have to stop here. Thank you for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Zachary Fisher. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.